everyone, Eric here from the D2C podcast, and today is a huge one. We are just about to dive deep with the email marketing nerd himself, Chase Diamond. Chase is responsible for over $50 million in attributable email revenue for his clients, and in the next hour, he is going to dive deep on the most pivotal aspects of his growth marketing strategy for email. We're going to cover what's happening with iOS 15 and what brands need to do to prepare today. We're going to talk about the four stages of email marketing and exactly what elements you need to have in place to master each one. We're going to tell you about a sender hack that we're going to be testing on the D2C newsletter this week and that you can be testing right away for increased open rates. We're going to be talking about how to use urgency and how not to use urgency in your emails. And we're also going to talk about what Chase is going to do differently this year for Black Friday, Cyber Monday than he did last. It's an absolute doozy of a podcast. Chase himself is such a great guy. I hope you enjoy it. On with the show. iOS 15 on Apple devices is going to mask the ability for us to understand who in particular opened. From my understanding, it could go one of two ways. It's going to show you that 100% of people opened it or 0% of people opened it. Most people are probably going to only have 20, 30, 40% of those people actually opening. Or now you're going to see all of them are going to open or none of them are going to open, which makes it difficult. The true kind of North Star metric is focusing on people that have clicked on your email, people that have replied, people that are active on your website, and people that are buying and placing orders. That is going to be the new norm is focusing on how do you get people to engage outside of just opening. This podcast is sponsored by Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform that puts D2C brands in control. If you're the leader of a D2C brand, you need a platform that hustles as hard as you do. Klaviyo unlocks the power of your e-commerce data so you can personalize and automate messages that keep customers coming back. D2C brands communicate with Klaviyo. Start for free at klaviyo.com DTC. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot DTC. Mr. Chase Diamond, welcome to the D2C podcast. Uh, I wanted to just ask you, like people have been able to, I've been able to email pe- people roughly since like 1994. Uh, and I wanted to know where do you think we're at right now in sort of like the evolution of the email marketing game? Like how many brands are there out there that are still sending no emails or crappy emails? Yeah, we're, we're at a really interesting point with email. And I guess first off, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. But we're at an interesting point, right? Where when we're recording this, we're kind of still pre iOS 15, right? So depending on when this comes out, we might be living in an iOS 15 world. I don't know. So that's a whole other topic which we can dive into um, later. But still to this day in, in 2021, it's kind of surprising like how many brands either A, are not doing email at all, B, are just scratching the service, or C, if they're doing it. Maybe they're not doing it well. They're leveraging tactics from like, you know, five, 10 years ago that were batching and blasting, no segmentation, setting up flows once and never thinking or remembering about them for years until they're like, oh man, I had that thing live. I accidentally got on my own list and I saw this, this sucks, right? So it's it's an interesting time where I think brands need to be more focused on retention, you know, predominantly email and also SMS is growing in popularity and, you know, Facebook's getting harder, top of the funnel's getting tougher. So we're at this really interesting time where Things were hard. They're getting tougher with iOS 14.5, you know, iOS 15. And, you know, you have to do a lot of things well, which makes it difficult. I think there's a real renaissance to just it being, uh, you know, a sexy topic, for instance. It's just, you know, revenue is sexy. And when you can create a, you know, a very low cost backbone of, say, 20 you know, percent of your business that you're driving through email, is, is that the percentage that I remember that was a benchmark a while back that people were striving for to have in their business 20 percent as a backbone of sales? What do you sort of strive for with businesses? Yeah, I'd say north of 20% of revenue coming from email is healthy. 
I'm not as much of an SMS guy, but we're seeing for some of our clients, you know, 10, 15% of revenue coming from SMS. So in some ways that does eat a little bit at your email revenue. In other ways, it kind of adds just more revenue to the top line through retention efforts. Uh, and it also depends on like what kind of brand you have and how hard you're spending and pushing on top of the funnel. A brand that spends very aggressively on top of the funnel, the percentage of revenue coming from email in the short term is probably going to be lower. But it is a lagging indicator right? over time as you build your list and as you're sending more campaigns and you have the right automations in place, that will lift up as a percentage and obviously as a dollar amount. And then as you obviously add other channels and whatnot. So one thing that comes to mind is like, say you're like a cannabis brand or a CBD brand, the percentage of revenue coming from email could be 40, 50% just because your hands are kind of cuffed and you have a lot less, you know, you can do on top of the funnel. But for like the average traditional e-com brand, let's say skincare, health and wellness, home decor, you know, very standard things that don't have restrictions, I would aim for 20, 25, 30% of your revenue from email. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, brands that are not doing email at all. How do you think about the stages of development for brands kind of building out their email platform? Like you're obviously not going to be going whole hog right off the bat. How do you think about like the major first section of things that people should be tackling if they're not really doing anything right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually think about this uh, kind of as brands in four categories and at each category you're in. I think about introducing different automations and different campaigns and leveraging certain things. So I'll talk really quickly about the stages and I'll dive into each one. So I think about brands in one category. Let's say category one is zero to $100,000 a year in revenue. Category two is 100,000 to 500,000 a year. Category three is about 500,000 to about 5 million. And then category four is 5 million and onward. So each of those introduces new opportunity as well as new challenges. So starting at category one, zero to $100,000 a year, you have to focus on the, the absolute core, the absolute necessities. That's things like the welcome series for non-buyers, the abandoned checkout, and the post-purchase. Right. So the welcome series for non-buyers basically greets people, welcomes them to the list, and delivers any kind of value or offer that you promised in your form. 10% off, reshipping, $10 off, um, com- confirmation that you got into this monthly giveaway, here's the content piece, whatever it might be. And then you have a couple other emails telling them about who you are, you know, how you guys are different, why you matter, what's in it for the consumer, leveraging social proof, right? So that's a really standard pre-purchase automation that all brands should have and all brands should leverage. From there, I mentioned abandoned checkout. That's different than the abandoned cart. So if you think about the funnel, you know, the most number of people are going to be on the top of your website, right? On your actual website itself. And the fewest number of people are actually going to be checking out and making that purchase. So at each step in the funnel where people drop off and there's friction, you want to introduce different emails. So I'm going to go through the funnel and then I'll talk about the emails. So on your website, view the category collection, view the specific product or products, add it to cart, start to checkout and bought. So the one that I'm talking about, the abandoned checkout, that's right before people buy, right? So people are furthest down the funnel, have heavy kind of consideration, right? They're really interested, but for whatever reason, they didn't buy. Maybe you don't have free shipping. Maybe they got distracted. Their Maybe wallet wasn't on them. I just had that the other day. My wallet just wasn't on me and my phone didn't have my credit card saved, so I didn't buy something. Yeah. Exactly, right? You got a, you got a call on your phone, you get distracted, something happens. Or maybe you just want to see if this brand's going to send you some kind of offer in the email, right? We've kind of been trained as consumers that, hey, if we abandon our car, if we abandon our checkout, they might send us an offer that's not available online. Um, and if we even wait for these emails, you know, email three versus email one, we might have a better discount in email three because they really want to hook us. So those are different types of things. So the abandoned checkout is different than the abandoned cart. Make sure that you have both of those. If you don't, depending on the size of your brand, you're leaving hundreds of dollars on the table every month, 
thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars per month. So those are kind of on the abandoned side. And the last one I mentioned there is the basic post-purchase. You know, customer thank you, here's kind of some info while you wait, you know, customer review request once someone gets it and has chances to use it, you know, those types of things. So that's like the core kind of stack and the core automations that you have to do in that first bucket. But that's also applicable though to a brand doing more revenue if they don't have any email in place, right? Or that they're not just doing those specific things. If they just don't have a checkout, you know, a specific uh, checkout abandonment flow, like just exactly fortify. So do those things if you don't have them at all, irrespective of stage. But typically I like to preach it in stages. So that way people have a framework of how they can go from one stage to the other and the things that are going to you know move the needle. And then on the other side of the house, right, there's the campaigns. And I guess let me take one step back. A campaign is a one time send to a group of contacts. Think about a holiday offer or some kind of product launch. Whereas a flow or an automation is an email that's sent based off some kind of behavior or trigger action. Someone enters their email into a pop-up, that triggers a welcome series. Someone's on your list, adds something to cart, but doesn't start checkout, that will trigger the abandoned cart. So on the campaign side, if you're doing, you know, let's say zero to $100,000 a year, obviously you have a lot of things going on, you probably don't have a big team. At minimum, try to send one campaign per week, right? If you can get that second campaign per weekend, Cool, that's, that's gravy, we're, we're in the green. So do at least one campaign per week. And a couple buckets of campaigns, product launches, holidays, social proof, education, current events, there, there's a bunch. So that's kind of that first layer, does that make sense? Totally. I'm gonna kind of quickly go through the other so we can talk about other things. Keep but going. As you go from you know, zero to 100 to 100 to 500, you, know, you wanna add things like the abandoned cart. You know, it's super crucial, you know, it is one of the core ones, but it's not the first three that I would do but I would add the abandoned cart as soon after, and I'd add something like the browse abandonment, right? And then from there on the other side, right, instead of doing you know one campaign, potentially two campaigns a week, I would try to do two to three campaigns a week. Like two is the minimum and three is the, the goal. And then from the 500,000 to 5 million, I know that's kind of a large bucket, you know, I would add things like upsells, cross-sells, win-backs, you know, things of that nature on the automation side on the kind of post-purchase. So flows or pre-purchase, again, that's like the welcome series for non-buyers, the back in stock, the abandons, and then the post-purchase are things like the customer thank you, cross-sells, the upsells, the win-backs. So I would do that, and then I would try to ramp your frequency of campaigns to at least three to four a week. Minimum of three, you know, four is ideal. And then as you go upwards, right, five million plus, you should be sending four, five, six campaigns a week, obviously leveraging segmentation, so that way not one person, Eric, that way you don't receive all of the emails. Um, and then you'd add any additional flows, like a breakup series, uh, maybe like a site abandonment, uh, maybe gender specific, right? If someone bought from a certain category, trying to upsell or cross sell specific products in that category, so on and so forth. So that's kind of how I think about at each of the stages and just the content in general. I, I think that we just did it right there. We could just, we could check out everyone listening. Uh, I think, the, you know, find what stage you're in there and just make sure you have all of those pieces and, and knock them off. Like one of the, you know, working with the pilot house email team, uh, seeing some of the flows that they're building out and, and, and the schedules that they're building out ahead of time. It's really, it's actually when I, when I started at pilot house, it was, I took on a client that was, that was doing email and, and just like laying out all the different communications, making sure that you have everything varied, that you've got this good diversity in, in how you're messaging people. It's a really satisfying thing to kind of put together. Do you, do you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I love it. So we definitely map it out too. You could map it out as simply as in something like a Google Sheet, or you could leverage some kind of project management system where, yeah, just keep keep in mind like of this automation, like 
where in the journey they receive it and how many days after they hit that. That way you don't have, for example, I think where most people get tripped up is post-purchase, right? So a post-purchase email is coming from Shopify, WooCommerce, all those are the transactional emails. Those are very similar to flows, but those are for specific activities after people purchase. So you wanna make sure that you're not like having someone receive order confirmation, shipping confirmation, shipping updates, customer thank you, you know, customer information, right? Like you don't want them to receive like three emails on the same day. So you wanna just map out, especially on the automation side, like when those people are receiving them. And then you wanna cross check that with the campaign schedule. You don't wanna send a 10% or some kind of discount or offer to someone that bought yesterday, right? Especially if they bought without an offer. You know, that would tick a lot of people off, right? You know, Eric, if you buy from my store uh, yesterday and I'm sending you a 10% or 20% off offer today, you're gonna sure as heck hit up support and be like, yo, apply that 10 to 20% to my order. I didn't see that. So making sure that you're also omitting and kind of excluding people that recently buy from your campaigns, all of those things are super important to map out. So I, I like it because, you know, if you don't do it well and you don't do it right, then you're going to have some angry customers. So it's so important. One of the things you mentioned there was a win-back sequence. This is something we experimented with on the newsletter side. And we were finding that we were getting tons. I don't, you know, we were doing the targeting correctly, but we were finding that we were getting people emailing us to say, hey, I do open your emails. Uh, I don't know why you're sending me these messages that, you know, I, 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 that you want me to re-engage. I already am engaging. And I was wondering, you know, is that, was that a, a, an error on our part? Or is that just the fact that email tracking is already not as good as we think it is, like the actual open tracking of email? Yeah, I think it's more on the, the platform tech side than it is on you guys running the segment, right? You guys obviously know what you're doing. You probably run the segment correctly. One of the fallbacks and kind of the defaults that I always do when I run um, some kind of engaged segment is I also have a parameter that they haven't clicked because the way that currently open works, and again, iOS 15, a lot of this is going to change, especially on Apple devices, um, is there's a small invisible pixel within an email, right? And it, it tries its best to fire as, as people open it, but it's not perfect, right? Um, I don't know if it's 90% accurate, I don't know if it's more, I don't know if it's less, but even for a percentage of people, depending on the list size, right? If, if D2C newsletter has 25, 50,000 people, even a small percentage of those people not being properly tagged as openers, that could be dozens or hundreds of people actually hitting you up saying, yo, Eric, what the heck, I'm, I'm a loyal subscriber, I open these emails, I engage with these emails. So I think it's a bit of both, but for me, and again, obviously some of this is changing, I always add the parameter that someone also didn't click because you might see some people on your list that for whatever reason, the open isn't registering, but you can see that they clicked. So by seeing that they clicked, obviously they have to open. So that's kind of how I use that as a fallback. While we're on the topic of clicks, like this is where we're going, right? We're, we're, we're gonna go to a world of really focusing on clicks with iOS 15. Can you talk about that a little bit just for if, if people aren't aware of what's happening? I'll talk about that for sure, but the short answer is yes. Like we're moving towards like an engagement model above and beyond just an open. So super simply put, iOS 15 on uh, Apple devices, you know, is gonna basically mask the ability for us to understand who in particular opened. From my understanding, again, it could go one of two ways. It's gonna show either that 100% of people opened it or 0% of people opened it. And I think it's leaning towards the 100% of people on Apple devices are gonna show open, which obviously is not the case. You know, most people are probably gonna only have 20, 30, 40% of those people actually opening, where now you're gonna see all of them are gonna open or none of them are gonna open, which makes it difficult. And, and really the, the true kind of North Star metric here is focusing on people that have clicked on your email, people that have replied, people that are active on your website, and people that are buying and kind of placing orders, right? Like that is gonna be the, the new norm is focusing on like, how do you get people to engage outside of just opening? 
you know, I'm kind of in this camp where like, I think the open rates are great and I actually really like it. And a lot of people say that they're vanity metrics. So I am truthfully bummed that it's going away, but it's not the end all be all. It's not the end of the world. We're all gonna be okay. Email's still gonna be a great channel. We're just gonna lose some visibility into opening and also some of the IP stuff is gonna be masked. So we won't necessarily know super specifically like where someone is located, which, you know, depending on how you leverage, you know, geography data could be a big deal, couldn't be a big deal. Um, you know, it's a toss up. Are there any steps that like any concrete steps that brands have to take? Is it, or is it really just a, a shift in thinking at this point? The, the honest answer is I'm not sure. You know, I have some, some thoughts and I've got some hypotheses, but, but I don't know. And I don't think really anyone knows uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, I did an iOS 14 roundtable with about six of the ESP execs and CEOs and founders. And it sounds like a lot of these tools, whether it's, you know, Clavio or some of the others, they're going to have to, and they're planning on building some new tech within their tools that allows you to try to parse together some analytics and reporting and attribution and data. So I don't know exactly. They didn't know exactly either because that was pretty early on, and it's still, frankly, early on. I don't think we'll actually know for a couple of weeks, a couple of months longer, but it sounds like a lot of these tools are going to hopefully try to build new ways to figure out who's engaged, who is engaged, um, and how you make sure that your account is healthy because if your account is healthy on their platform, that means their reputation's healthy with Google and so on and so forth, and everyone wins. So they're going to be incentivized, I think, to offer handholding and tools and solutions to help us as brands and agencies win, or else they're screwed, right? And these are hundreds of millions of dollars, and these are billions of dollars of brands. So you better believe that someone's going to come up with something. But my honest answer is I don't know what that looks like yet. Do you use Litmus? We, we don't. Um, so I... Without going on a super long tangent, like as an agency, and I'm sure that you understand this, like we we don't never know like who's supposed to pay for all these extra bells and whistles, right? Mm. Clavio, in our experience, I'm sure probably in yours, is always on the brand. The brand owns the Clavio account. They own whatever email account. They foot the bill. But with some of these other tools like deliverability tools or reporting tools, it's always kind of like this tug and pull of like, well, if you're a full service agency, well, shouldn't you be taking care of that? It's like, well, yeah, we, we do. But then as you kind of scale and you're paying for these expensive tools, that really hurts your margins. Like, you know, we'll pay for it. We'll have to charge you more, right? So so long-winded, we don't really use Litmus a lot just because of the size that we're at right now. It gets super expensive. But in terms of actually figuring out, like, how emails render and how emails kind of where they land, there are a couple of free tools out there that we use that kind of give us a benchmark. Um, so on the deliverability side, just trying to figure out where an email lands, whether it's in the inbox, uh, promotions, or spam, uh, there's a few tools. One is called gmas.co backslash inbox. It's basically a seed list of 20 email accounts and they're different ages. One is a 20 year old Gmail account, one's a 10 year old Gmail account, you know, one years. And they all have different kind of, um, I guess, parameters and different tech on top of it, like a hey.com or something like that. And you can see for each of these devices that they have where you land. So what we'll do is we'll send kind of to the seed list of 20 people an email and we're like, oh man, we hit promotions. Like what can we change? You know, do we have too many images or the images not properly cut down in terms of their weight and their size? Um, you know, is there not enough text? Uh, or maybe we use some words in the subject line that just set it off. Free, you know, discount, like whatever it might be, right? It's, it's different for certain people. So we'll do something like that on, on deliverability side. There's a couple other tools as well. If you just do Google searches that are free or kind of cost effective, like I think there's one called like Mail Genius that's free. There's a paid one called like 250OK. So that's on that side. In terms of seeing how emails actually render across devices, which also is a use case of Litmus, like on an iPad versus Outlook versus you know iPhone, Android, we have a bunch of people on our team that have different devices. 
that we'll kind of do in our QA check, a quick ping and be like, hey, does this look good? Does that look good? Um, and there's a couple other tools that we're trying to get discounts on and work with that are, are more affordable. So we're kind of a little bit, I guess, hacking it together, making it work and you know, trying to figure it out. I love it. Yeah, we have a slightly different use case as a newsletter, right? Because we're we're trying to figure out how far people get down the page and, and the clicks are obviously super important as well. I'm just wondering if litmus will still work if the like, you know, the read versus skim versus um, whatever the other metric is. I wonder if that will be able to be sensed or if it'll be blocked in the same way that the, the, the opens are. Yeah, that's a good question. It's tools like that. And then I also have some buddies that run newsletters as well that leverage um, basically like Power Inbox and Live Intent for those that are unfamiliar, it's essentially like Google AdSense for a website, but specifically for email. And they've been trying to get an answer from their reps over those companies. It's like, well, how am I as a newsletter publisher going to get paid if we're doing this on a CPM, right? You're, they're getting paid right now on every thousand people that open. Maybe they're getting paid five bucks. Um, and then obviously the more people that click, the higher their CPM is. So they're not trying to figure out like, well, how do I sell advertisers on you know my opens and my engagement if I don't actually know what that looks like. So I'm, I'm truthfully not sure. And I'm really curious, like, you know, Litmus, Power Inbox, Live Intent, a lot of these other tools, like how that's going to work. Yeah. And then on the other side, right, there's other tools out there that help you figure out whether your email is good to send to, not sure to send to, or bad to send to, right? So good means it's clean, they've verified it. And those are all kind of like list cleaning, email deliverability kind of verification tools that are really important. Um, I'm making sure that you're not sending the spam traps or not sending the bounced emails. Because obviously, the more bounces that you get, that's an indication to Clavio, Google, everyone that you've typically purchased a list, which isn't always necessarily the case. So I'm not sure how some of those other tools are going to handle it. Because the way that I understand it works is you upload a list and they quickly do some kind of ping to that individual email. And then they'll have a status back that says, yep, we were able to deliver something or yep, this email has received mail recently. Um, so I think the whole ecosystem is going to be kind of shooken up to what degree and what magnitude uh, uncertain. It's interesting. It's like, uh, yeah, watching it all happen with the other platforms with Facebook ads and then knowing, you know, something is, is going to come come here as well. It's just part of, uh, you know, the uncertainty that's in the world right now that we were speaking of in the pre-talk a little bit. It's uh, some very interesting times. Yeah, it's crazy. I think what I want to double down on this point before we do the next one, I was like, no one knows what's going to happen. But email, SMS, all these things that you're doing are still going to be great channels. So don't give up on them. Don't abandon them. Continue with them. We're all going to be figuring it out. We're all going to figure it out. And for people that are new and just starting, like they won't even know the difference, right? Like people that do this in one year or three years, like that's going to be the norm. And the people in one or three years are going to be just fine. So I think it's a little bit more kind of daunting in some ways for us because we're so used and we're so in the groove and we're so used to the normal that we're kind of scared of like the uncertainty. Um, but the uncertainty is uncertain, right? It's going to be the case for everyone, unfortunately. You know, this person, that person, everyone else is on the same place. So I think the ability for us to have these conversations and the iOS roundtable that I have is really important for just getting a bunch of smart people together to just share, you know, their thoughts and their hypotheses. And whether you're right or wrong, um, we'll see. And following you on Twitter, too, even just reading things about, you know, getting good at, at human persuasion, you know, these these kinds of things are never changing. So regardless of whether the tech changes, you know, I was marketing in 2007 when we didn't have a pixel. Uh, so, you know, I, I can go, I can do a server, I can server to server track if I have to, and all these things. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Stay the course. Owned media is is definitely where it's at. And speaking of owning media, I saw another one of your tweets. First of all, we're going to talk about this at the end, but you've got to follow Chase on Twitter. He's just a font of wisdom all the time. Uh, lots of great value 
that he's just putting out into the universe on that platform. And I was seeing recently just talking about opt-in rates for, you know, just getting that email to begin with, like pre-purchase, whether you're using a spinning wheel or a discount or all these different things. I think so many people go into that with like, okay, here's what I should sort of do. This is what I should do out of the box. This is the thing that I saw on someone else's website or whatever. I'm, I'm curious, what's your strategy with getting people to opt in the most efficient way? And what's some of, what are some of the highest percentages you've been able to achieve in terms of those opt-in numbers? Yeah, that's a great question. So let's, let's dive into that. I guess I'll start with the percentages. You know, I think some of our clients, I don't know, right now or in the past, we're doing upwards of like 18 to 20% of cold traffic actually enter their email. I'd say that the standard for our clients probably is more like 7 to 10, maybe like 8 to 12, right? Depending on what the offer is or isn't. I think that's the standard for, for our clients probably for some years. And I think the actual industry is probably a lot lower. I think the industry is probably like two, three, four percent, right? So I think what we're doing and probably what you guys are doing, it's probably two to three X the, the norm. And I want to kind of talk about, there's a couple of things that influence um, your opt-in rate. One is the offer, right? The offer is super important. I think that's probably one of the highest leverage things. And I'll, and I'll talk actually about all these in, in depth. So I think the offer is probably the highest leverage. And I think from there, probably the, the copy and the design, you know, what does it say? How does it make you feel? What does it look like? And then from there, the, the behavior. Is it immediately shown on page load? Is it exit intent? Is it on page scroll? So those are some of the, the factors that we deal with. And based off some of our data, based off some data from Privy that they've shared with me, different offers lead to different outcomes. So f- starting at the bottom. So if someone just has in a pop-up, let's say enter to get our latest updates, enter to get our newsletter, that's really not that exciting, right? You can expect about one, maybe 2% of people to give you their email. So for out of, out of every 100 people to your site, you can expect one to two people to give you their email, right? Not, not that great. Whereas with some kind of offer incentive, 10% off, $10 off, free shipping, free product with purchase, you can expect in the ballpark, give or take about 5 to 10%. So for every 100 people to your website, you can expect about 5 to 10 people to give you their email. And then the last one is this whole enter to win thing. You know, enter to win a weekly giveaway, monthly giveaway of our wallet if we're a wallet company, you know, hat if we're a hat company, whatever it might be. You know, you can expect kind of high single digit, you know, low double digit. So 8%, of people to give you their email, right? So when people hear that though, they're like, oh, I need to do this enter to win. And like, that's immediately what they hear. And that's not necessarily the case. What I've found with the enter to win is you maybe get more emails and not that the emails are not less qualified or more qualified, but people want to wait that week or that month to see if they won, right? They're entering to see if if they're going to get something, they want something for free. They're going to wait to see if they won. And then from there, you know, they're going to make their purchase or, or they're not. So just being able to kind of attribute that pop-up person and then that sale that's further down the line, it's a little bit harder to tie those two together. Whereas with the whole 10%, $10 free product with purchase, free shipping, that's pretty immediate, right? People get that offer right away on the pop-up and the confirmation and they get that right away in the welcome email. So it's way easier and way quicker to see the attribution towards someone on your website, enter their email and convert it. So we typically still move with like the offer one just because it's way easier and way more immediate to track. The other one's a little bit more confusing. So those are kind of the, I guess, what you can expect. And then as I mentioned before, outside testing the offers, the, the discounts, the incentives, testing the copy and the design. You know, this is this image of this guy versus this image of the girl versus an image of both of them versus a lifestyle photo versus a product photo. You know, which of those has the highest opt-in rate? And then what about the copy, right? Is the copy like kind of straightforward and serious? Is it a little bit more fun and playful? 
you know, testing those types of things and then testing the behavior as well. Those are kind of some of the things that we're thinking about and doing to hopefully, you know, increase the conversion in terms of email capture. Can you just give, I know I, I was reading again on, on your Twitter, I was reading about some of the subject lines that you love and, and what goes into making a good subject line. Like what's your all time favorite subject line? Do you have, a, do you have like a series of go-tos that you just make sure are in there? It, it really depends on like the email. Is it a campaign for a holiday? Is it for a product launch? Is it an abandoned cart? Is it an abandoned checkout? So subject lines like really, really vary. I mean, there's probably few that potentially are universal, but most are like very specific. You know, I think in terms of, getting people to open, right? There's three really big factors that allow people to open your email outside where you land. Obviously, where you land is going to indicate, again, like what your kind of open rates could be. If you're in the primary folder, like, you know, you could be getting on a campaign 20, 30, 40, 50%. On an automation, you could be getting, you know, 50, 60, 70% if you're in the primary inbox, right? Where if you're in the promotions, you're still going to get decent opens. You're not going to probably get nearly as many opens as you will in the primary folder, but you're going to get way more opens than you will in the spam folder. In the spam folder, you'll probably be lucky to get north of 5%, right? You're probably at like 1%, 3%, 5% if you're in the spam folder. So all things equal, right? Considering or assuming we're landing in the primary folder, there's three things that influence whether someone will open from you. The first, and this is going to go from left to right if you're looking at your inbox. The first is the from name, right? So from my personal newsletter, it's just Chase Diamond, or even it's sending from my email address, and I'll talk about that in one, one second. From you, right, it might come from Erica D2C, it might come from D2C, it might come from D2C Magazine, right? It might come from any or, or all or some of those, depending on what you guys have found worked. The next one is the subject line. I think that obviously most people know that, that gets the most attention. The next one is the preview text or the pre-header text, and it's almost like a secondary subject line, right? It's, it kind of teases and entices the open. That was one of my questions here is like, really, how do you, like what's it, give me a good example of a really good preview text and subject line and how they flow together. Okay, so, and I wanna talk about the, the from name, so I'll talk about the from name in this. Okay. So I've found, and our team has found through testing with some clients, we actually did this by accident and we found that this worked. In the from name, again, typically it's always a name. Chase, Chase Diamond, you know, Chase at Chase Diamond, whatever it might be, it's always some kind of name. By accident, we accidentally put chase at chasediamond.com. So we used the from email also as the from name mm. and we sent it out and we're like, oh shoot, we really, really screwed up. Like, we're so sorry. And when we analyzed the data later, we're like, holy smokes, the lift in opens on sending from an actual email address as the name has been huge. And every single week that I do that for my own newsletter, people are texting me and messaging me like, oh dude, you accidentally put your email address as a from name. Like, just wanted to let you know, I'm like, I appreciate your heads up. I appreciate you being on this, but I actually did that intentionally. It's moved the needle. So we've tested that on dozens of our clients. And the reason is no one does it. It stands out. Everyone always has their name. So it kind of throws off the pattern. And the more things that you can do to break the pattern, the better. Again, don't be spammy. Don't be clickbaity, but the more pattern breakers, the better. So that was one thing on the from name. And then on the subject line, right? You know, depending on what the subject line is, it might be, I don't know, email marketing hacks, dot, 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 right? And then the preview text might be dot, dot, dot. We probably shouldn't be sharing these hacks, but we are, right? Like something like that would work. So Chase at Chase Diamond, they're like, huh, this is weird. This is interesting. I know Chase, but like it's his email address. Our best email hacks. Okay, I'm interested. And then preview text is like, you know, my team didn't want me to share these or we probably shouldn't be sharing these, but it's your lucky day. I think something like that would probably get people to open. And then obviously the body copy in the email has to be delivering on those hacks and have to really, you know, hit, hit the needle. Um, 
What do you think about that? I love it. Well, first of all, everyone who's listening to this is going to be getting an email from Eric at directconsumer.co in the in the two line for sure. Try it this weekend. We're gonna. We're, we're that's. I've already. I've, I pinged my team. It's happening. Um, really excited about that. Yeah. No. I think. I think that makes perfect sense. I wanted to do. You, you, you talk a lot about uh, really like selling that click, really driving, really focusing, having your emails serve a very specific purpose. Each one, what it is, and almost always, it's selling the click. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like again, like I talk a lot about like psychology and human nature and tendencies. Like, if you give people too many options, it's really hard for them to make the choice of which option they want. So, in an email, if it's like. You know, we want you to open this email and we want you to read the email and we want you to click and we want you to purchase and we want you to forward and we want you to do this, that, and the other. It's like, well, holy smokes, like what do you what do you really want from me? Right? Like at the end of the day, like what do you want? And if all those things, obviously, right, getting someone to click means someone had to open the email, they had to be engaging with the email and they had to click. Like that is the goal. Like make it singular focus. The goal is to get people to click through, and then your your website, your landing page, your product page, whatever it has to be, that has to take people and move them from, all right, great, we now have some interest and some intent at least to learn more. How do we get them over the finish line? Having someone add to cart, starting checkout, at least moving them down the funnel. So that's like that's the goal. And like we try to get the teams that we work with on the brand side and the teams that we work with on the websites, like, all right, our goal is to push the click there. Your goal then is to take them from click to whatever that goal is. Fill out the survey, buy from us, add to cart, start checkout. So I, that's really what we preach. And then it's a really an ecosystem thing. We'll, we'll get the open, we'll get the click, and then it's on them to drive the sale. And you'll also try to pre-frame with urgency whenever possible. Yes. I wanted to ask about that because, you know, I, I, you know, when I got into info, I remember just reading all of Russell Brunson's books and, you know, talking about this idea of urgency and scarcity and always then being the, the advice that you hear, I think a lot is that you always you have to enforce it. Like when you miss a sale, you know, when you, when that timeline, when that countdown clock ends, you know, you've, you've missed out. I'm curious on your opinion on that and how uh, you walk that line with urgency, scarcity, and actually the consequences of missing it. Yeah, that's a good question, right? Like, and again, I think early in my career, like we had been on the wrong side of like scarcity and urgency where it was like, you know, almost like manufactured, right? I think that's where you get into trouble. And I think that's where you lose trust is like, if you're going to run a sale, run the sale and if it's going to expire, make sure it expires. Don't leave that code open. Yeah. Don't run that same sale the next day, um, right? So I, I think, you know, I learned the hard way like really early on, like out of college, like don't don't mess with that, right? Like people get mad, people talk and you're going to actually do more harm than good. So I think when you have urgency or scarcity, right? Like why is it scarce? Do you have a limited quantity? And is the limited quantity, is that manufactured or is that real? Like, and if it's real, right? We only wanted to make this limited quantity because we wanted to charge more, Okay, right? Like, and there's certain brands like Supreme and other companies out there that like have built a whole business model on being kind of scarce, right? They have this crazy secondary and third market where people kind of buy and resell, which is a whole thing in and of itself. So I, I guess the big point I want to say first is like, if you're going to have urgency and kind of add FOMO and have scarcity, understand the why and understand the pros and the cons. The pros is that sure, you could drive a lot of sales and the cons are that if you're just making it up, like, it's going to work maybe once or twice and it's not going to be sustainable. Um, with that, right, like I think having something like that allows you to move the needles, especially for brands that you know don't want to do discounts. That's where I think the whole scarcity thing, like limited edition, limited quantity, that is a really big move, kind of needle mover because you're not going to offer a discount. Whereas with other things, right, most people do the countdown timers and the discount because they're willing to do discounts, but they need to get people to actually use it. If there's a 10% off year round, it's like, 
well, I'm not going to use the 10% off today. I'm going to use the 10% off when I want to or if I, if I ever want to, right? Um, so those are kind of some of the things that we think about when we run those emails. I think countdown timers are, are great. Countdown timers, though, also kind of confuse me sometimes. It's like, are you counting down to like when the sale starts or are you counting down to when the sale ends? And sometimes consumers get confused. So I think also being really clear on like what the countdown timer is for. If you're going to kind of hype an email up, right, that countdown timer better be explaining that that's when the sale actually starts, not when the sale ends. And if the sale is currently live and it's running down, make sure that that countdown timer actually tells people that the time's up, that's when it expires. Explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. I think that my cousin Vinny said that. And I know it's something you preach about, about CTAs as well. Be very, very specific in your CTAs with exactly what you want people to do. Yeah, I mean, like we, we're finding that the more like direct that we are, the better, right? Everyone right now, I think, is so scatterbrained. Our attentions are all over the place. We have so many different things, especially working at home, I think, has changed a lot of consumer behavior. It's like your wife, your mom, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, whoever, your friend is at your house. Like these people are around you and there's noises and there's someone's watching the TV and my daughter's screaming, right? Like there's all these things happening. Like the simpler you can be, the more focused you could be, the more direct that you can be, I think the better. I wanted to ask, is there anything, because I just am hearing the first sort of rumblings of uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday planning and strategy and preparations going on. I, I, is there anything that you've sort of earmarked? And I know every year our team will learn a new thing. I think last year they were like, oh, I, you know, I think it, it was maybe starting a week earlier or something, you know, really was what they took from last year. They're going to start a week earlier this year kind of thing. Is there anything that you're going to do differently this year than last year for Black Cyber Friday Monday? I think a lot of the things are going to be similar. We're just going to increase the, the speed and the magnitude. And I think one of the big ones from last year, which I think is going to even be probably a big, like a bigger potential warrior issue this year is like fulfillment, um, fulfillment from the factories and also fulfillment in terms of actually getting the package from warehouse to consumer's door. I just think the amount of people obviously that are buying online this year and last year versus previous years is just like through the roof, right? Obviously that's not anything new for anyone listening. Like, the number of purchases online are so much larger than they've ever been before. I think the infrastructure for companies to fulfill, like if you think about who actually fulfills, it's like there's almost like a, a duopoly. Like there's not that many companies, right? It's almost like there's like, we can count them on one hand. It's like USBS, UPS, FedEx, and maybe like one or two others, right? And you think about everyone is using those same carriers to fulfill. I think they're going to probably prioritize their larger merchants, right? They're going to prioritize you know, wh whoever their biggest customers Amazon, are. So these small yeah. guys are probably going to get squeezed. So I think um, making sure that, A, you have some kind of comms or kind of communication with your factory about, hey, are you guys going to be able to fulfill this in general and on time? And then also trying to figure out from your carrier, like, are you guys going to be able to deliver this in a timely period? What's that look like? So I think just getting ahead and having those conversations now shows that you're planning for the future and building that relationship. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that we're focused on worrying about is like making sure that our brands can actually support the sales that we're going to drive and that they're going to drive and making sure that we're communicating to customers any updates. Hey, shipping times are going to be longer this year. Get your order in advance, which means we have to then start selling earlier in advance, right? So those are kind of some of the things that are top of mind for me right now. 
but I'm sure as kind of gets a little bit closer, there's going to be new things. And even just, you know, yeah, with the way supply chains are in general right now, I think it's a really wise thing to be looking into and investing uh, some time into, into sussing out ahead of time. That's great, great advice. And it's going to benefit your whole business, your email, it's going to benefit your organic and your, your paid and all that stuff. So I think it's great. I wanted to ask, like, what are some D2C brands that you love? Like, what are some D2C brands that you sort of love in your life generally? As a consumer or as someone that I respect their marketing? Uh, well, it's maybe one of each. So I actually really don't buy much. I buy like very little because I hate spending money on myself. I buy more for other people. So I guess I spend money, but not on myself really. Okay. For me personally, I really like a, a brand called Built. It's B-Y-L-T. I don't know if you've seen them. They make um like cool, I'm actually wearing a t-shirt and shorts from them. They're kind of almost like a athleisure kind of lifestyle brand where they make yeah. really cool t-shirts and shorts and hats. So for me personally as a brand, I think my LTV with them is probably sad to, to share like it's 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 a lot um they're always dropping new things and they always get me to buy from their emails and it's funny like as an email guy like i still fall for it right i still fall for their sales i still fall for their urgency um, because i have been on the receiving end of trying to buy something from them and it's selling out right and it made that me feel like damn like i really wanted that and i had to wait months for it so i think the fact that like they keep selling out and they have such great products and i know what it's like it's driven like this feeling in me where like as soon as I get their email, I have to go buy. Um, so that's one on the kind of consumer side. One uh, brand that I actually really like, and I might be biased because we did some work with them, was the brand called uh, Nugs, and they now are called Simulate. Um, and again, I can't take credit for it personally, and my team can't take credit for it, but they have great marketing, they've got great assets, they've got loyal customers, which makes our job on email so easy. And even before we started working with them, I was obsessed with their ads. I love the way that they do everything right there. Like, so unapologetically themselves like they don't really give a shit they're just so funny and fun and out there and i really love when brands just do that i think there's very few brands that are able to do that well and authentically and when you do that right you you don't create a community you don't create a tribe you create a cult like that really is the word to describe someone like them it's like they have a cult people are crazy diehard i don't mean cult like in a disrespectful way i just mean it as like loyalist diehard I think when you do that, like when you're so unapologetically yourself, you find those other 1% or 5% of people that are the same and the voices are just so loud, right? When you're kind of this brand in the middle and there's nothing wrong with being on the middle or on the other end of just kind of being a shyer brand for lack of a better word, but you get just people that like you. With brands like Nugs and other brands like that, you get people that are nuts about you and love you, right? And others who will look at that and be like, why is that chicken eating a chicken nugget on their package, you know? But it's like you force people to make a decision. And I think that's really the way forward for brands is not to go that that middle path and be everything to everyone. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice for people. It's funny, we put out brands that we wanted to work with on the Pilot House side and we brought them into our orbit and it's, it's been, so the Pilot ha this podcast has uh, this power. If there was any other brand out there besides Nugs that you wanted to like hear this and be like, you know, that you'd want to work with just from a creative standpoint or an asset standpoint, are there any other brands that you'd want to work with? Man, that's a great question. Um, like who's your dream client? Oh man. Like Tesla? T Tesla would be nuts. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, it'd be a lot of pressure, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, a, that's a really good question. I actually have like a dream list written down of like 10 brands that I, I really want to work with. Um, you know, a couple of them have actually hit us up over the past couple of months, but just from a timing perspective, like we, we have a wait list right now as an agency and we just could not make the wait list work. Like we are so methodical and so strict about our wait list in terms of like, I don't care what brand you are. If we made a commitment to you and you're a small brand that no one knows, like we're going to work with you. So 
I don't want to put anyone out there yet because we can't take them on yet and it's just going to be more of a bummer. But there's definitely some cool brands out there. Like obviously Tesla would be unbelievable. You know, realistically speaking, I don't know if they're going to hit us out, but, but Elon, if you listen to the D2C podcast, I'd love to connect on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. Who, who are some that, you know, kind of you would love to work with or you guys have loved to work with that you guys have got? On our side, like, um, yeah, I've, I, I'm like, because we have all these people who subscribe to the newsletter. I'm sure it's similar with your newsletter as well. You see all these like aspirational brands that are, are reading your stuff. Um, I, for me, I'd love to get involved with Nike. I'd love to, you know, Nike has always just been, uh, I'd love Yeezy. Yeezy would be my favorite. If I, if I could get, if I could do some business with Kanye West, uh, album coming out this Friday, uh, I would be be pretty psyched about that because he's he's one of those one of those interesting characters up up there for me that I, I I think I think you could send some fun emails from Kanye. Man, that would be yeah, that'd be sick. You could do a bunch of cool memes and a bunch of cool content and have just a bunch of fun. Man, and yeah, that would be that'd be really cool. I've actually never thought about like when I think about dream clients, I think about I guess I'm shooting low. I'm thinking about like setting the bar like realistic. Not that Nike's unrealistic. I'm sure you guys could take them on. Uh, like f- for example, like one brand that I loved. Um, you know, was like Buck Mason and Buck Mason hit me up a couple months back and I had a couple calls with them and ended up helping them for free, which is some consulting because I love the brand so much. They wanted to hire us. They wanted to pay us, but like they were like a cool one. And I guess they were a dream brand just because I, I wore their stuff and I liked them so much. But if I think about like actual like dream brands where it's like very aspirational, yeah, like I think like Nikes and like the Lululemons of the world would be just like Unreal. Yeah, Lululemon would be a really good one too. Uh, some Canadian content there. You know, I, I've been following you for such a long time. You you lead with value in in such a big way, and I think uh, you know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are brands, but a lot are on the agency and the consultancy side as well. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your your strategy on social media uh, and how, how the kind of dividends it's paid to be as you know to really focus on providing as much value as you have on these platforms. Yeah, appreciate that. I mean, dude, I don't think I would be on this podcast. I don't think I would be running an agency. I don't think I would be doing the things I was doing if it weren't for for social and it wasn't for for content. Like content really has been like the lifeline and the lifeblood like of the agency in terms of uh, recruiting brands, recruiting talent. We're even at a place right now where we're trying to like acquire agencies and kind of like acquire agencies. Like everything, I don't want to say everything good in my life, but a lot of the good stuff on the, the professional side, obviously on the personal side, relationships and outside like that doesn't apply but like on the professional side everything good has stemmed from some kind of content and i've been doing this for you know three to five years and i think people just found me past six 12 maybe 18 months right and there's a lot of people that still obviously don't know me and hopefully will, will find me so i think like my biggest advice is that like none of this stuff happened overnight while people just found me they think i just popped up i've been doing this every single day three to five times a day for for years but being consistent with it and doing it over a prolonged period of time, like that's so important. And also just providing content that like actually helps people, right? Think about like the number of people that like will share the DTC magazine and the podcast tidbits and my newsletter and all of our social stuff. Like way more people are consuming our content, way more people are sharing our content, and way more people are benefiting our content than we'll ever find out. Like I talk to uh, Nick Shackelford all the time, but like for every one person that reaches out to us and says thank you, there's probably another five to 10 people that appreciate us in, in kind of silence and, and, and quiet. So for, for me, it's addicting. Like with our agency, we're, we're limited with how many people we could work with, right? We're limited by the number of brands we could take on. And I wanna just help people. I, I have so much stuff that I've learned and I have even more stuff that I'm learning that I just like to share. And I kind of look at my, my channels as like my personal diary. I wanna know the things that I thought. I wanna know the things that I cared about. 
And it's kind of cool that other people happen to like re- resonate. Like on my Twitter, my social stuff, I post about four things. I post about my family, mostly my daughter. I post about e-commerce email marketing. I post about my agency. And I post about beating my brothers up in basketball, right? Like those are the things I care about. Those are the things I post about. And those are the things I will, will share. And for whatever reason, people also resonate with those things. So I, I guess I'm kind of going on a tangent, but like producing social content, I think is one of the most important things. And in particular, I think Twitter is one of the most powerful places right now for content. The organic reach on Twitter is insane. So the best advice I have on Twitter is A, um, be active, right? So be active as a consumer and be active as a producer. On the consumer side, right? With things that you read, like it, retweet it, comment on it. You know, people take notice. Like I know who likes my stuff and comments on my stuff and shares my stuff. And anytime those people send me a DM with a question, you better believe I'm excited to share because they've they've shared my stuff, right? I'm excited to respond to them. Um, so I think that's one. Two, like, you know, create. I think most people just get in the habit of consuming. I think creating is so important. Like, it's actually easier if you just, you know, break it down. Aim for one tweet a day. And, and, and who cares what it's about? Just post something. Just get in the habit of writing for certain platforms. Um, and then finding people to like and comment and retweet your own stuff is so important. Like with the reach on Twitter, having people that have an audience and having people that have a following, liking and engaging your stuff allows you to get reach. So I have, I don't know, 25 to 30,000 followers on Twitter, which to me, I think that's a lot, but in, in comparison to other people, it's not a lot. But the part that really is impactful is I get between three to 4 million impressions a month on Twitter. So to have that few of following, so you get that many impressions, that will just show you the power of Twitter. So for, for me, I care a lot about Twitter. Um, I like LinkedIn a little bit. I, I think LinkedIn has a lot of the right demo. I haven't figured out or mastered that one as much, but it has some organic reach. So I think LinkedIn's great. And then outside of that, I like YouTube. I think if you could build an audience on YouTube, that is so powerful. Yeah, I think, I, and no, no TikTok yet. TikTok is when I end up talking about on the podcast a little bit just because I'm in its clutches as a user these days. I've found so many interesting topics. It's, it's, to me, it's like, it's like Reddit was early, you know, early in the day or, or, or a couple of years ago, like five years ago. Um, and, I've, and I've seen some of my friends start to build their, their sort of info personas on it. And it seems, it seems like they're really gaining some traction there too. I like TikTok. I've been doing Instagram reels and TikTok probably daily for the past like two or three weeks. So I don't have enough insight to share that. For whatever reason, the, the videos of my daughter get tens of thousands of views and the videos of me get like hundreds of views or low thousands of views, right? So it's like, Way cuter. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, man, I think my daughter can become famous on TikTok and she's 16 months before I am, right? So it's like, I don't know. I, I like it and I want to crack it. I just haven't figured it out. The thing that I also think you're really good at, and I think it's the thing that stops a lot of people from creating, is it's like, you know, they, they, they think that they, they don't realize how much they know. You know, they don't, I think a lot of people in our space maybe don't realize, maybe they've been, had their heads down, been building for such a long time. They don't take the time to realize how much they really know versus, you know, some of the people out there. And so they feel shy about saying things like the stuff, the stuff that you write is, is like great. And it's super helpful. It's not rocket science. I think you'd probably be the first to admit, right? These are, these are just, these are the simple steps you take to to do this stuff. And, And a lot of people probably have all sorts of areas in their lives where they have that kind of wisdom. So true. Yeah. Two points to say there. I think with what I talk about, and this applies to email as a whole, like nothing I talk about is rocket science. Everything I talk about is like just being consistent, making sure that you have touch points and doing enough of the right things. And that's actually applicable to everything that you do, right? Making sure that you're posting enough, making sure that the quality is good enough, where everyone always asks me like, what's the silver bullet in emails? Like there's no silver bullet. You have to send enough campaigns. You have to hit the right segments. 
You have to test plain text versus designed emails. You have to make sure that you have a touch point on the automation side for every step on pre-purchase, welcome series, back in stock, browse abandonment, ban cart, ban and checkout, post purchase, right? All the things we talked about before. And that's really what it is. So I think the reason that I'm winning on social and the reason that people could win with email is just by showing up every day, by being consistent. I think my superpower with social is the fact that I can create pretty high quality content pretty quickly. And I'm okay if I'm wrong. I never pretend that I know everything. I never ever, ever say that I know everything. Even today on this podcast, like you've asked me things. I'm like, I don't really know. I just have opinions. I'm going to share my opinions and whatever people, reason people resonate with those. But I think being honest and just transparent about like, I don't know everything, but these are the things I've known and these are the things I've tried and here's the outcome I've got. You might get the same outcome. You might get a better outcome. You might get a worse outcome. But if you don't try it, you won't ever know. And then you get this environment where you get people sharing that they've tried. I see it all the time. They've tried the things you're putting out there. They're seeing the results. That's one of the most rewarding things is just you constantly, constantly feel like, you know, with the newsletter, with what you're doing as well, it's this great feeling of, of feeling like you're just constantly putting good stuff out there that's that's actually moving the needle for people. Uh, and that it will be, another one of the quotes I saw on your page was from Harry Truman about it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't really care who gets credit. Yes. And I find that such a, it's, it's been a, that, that sort of, Ethos has been really critical to the way Pilot House has grown, you know, so much in the in the last year, as well as D 2 C and all this. It's just people all kind of like working in the same direction. Do you have any advice for how to instill that ethos in your in your business? That's a good question. I mean, I, I really think it stems from like the the founders and the leadership team, right? If you're that type of person that will just give, 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 and not worry about taking, if you're the type of person that like, you know, you're always building the team up and letting them do their thing, I think that's so important. I think where I went wrong early on in my career was I wanted people to look at me as the leader, right? I started the business, so I wanted people to look at me as the leader. I wanted to be the man. And sure, some people, that's that's okay and that works for them. But for me, it didn't. I noticed that as soon as I, I focused on switching it, I don't want to be the leader. I don't want to have to always know the answer. I don't want to have to be involved in everything. I'd rather have to not actually do anything, right? Like I'd rather kick, kick back, have my feet on the sand, you know, and hang out with my family and let my business run even better. So I think when you turn kind of, you know, quote unquote, the followers into the leaders and allow them to think for themselves and, and build their own personas and build their own teams and really lead and really not become the bottleneck, that's where the magic happens. So for me, you know, even I think having my daughter, aside from all those personal things, was the best thing professionally because I finally was like, I don't want to be in the day to day doing everything. I want the people that I hired to do the things that I hired them to do and I want to stay out of their way. And that has been really fulfilling. So. I guess to round that out is like when you are a leader, if that's your personality just to kind of like lead by example and lead quietly, others will, people will pick up on it, right? And start building up other people in the organization and let them really be the man or the woman or whoever. Love it. Chase, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think we'll definitely have to have you back. There's a couple areas that we didn't touch on that we'll uh, we'll have you back in probably hopefully before the Q4 madness ensues. Uh, but if people want to get in touch with you, I imagine Twitter might be the best way. Yeah, Twitter's perfect. So my handle's Ecom Chase Diamond, no A in Diamond. So it's just D I M O N D. So Ecom Chase Diamond. And yeah, I appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun, man. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.